So today, we want to talk to you about The Miracle Walker, a movie from 1962 about the true story of Helen Keller and her tutor, Anne Sullivan. It is a very powerful movie that contains within it many spiritual lessons that are very relevant to our spiritual walk with the Father, with our Maker. And the reason we want to talk to you about it is because we ourselves have seen this movie about four or five times now, and every time we watch it, there is just so much that we can take out of it that we decided to share some of those spiritual nuggets with you in the hope that you would take heed, learn, seek, and apply. Now, the movie is based on a true story, and if you know anything about the story of Helen Keller, she wasn't born blind and deaf, but when she was very, very young, a few months old, she had an accident and lost both her sight and her hearing. And she grew up pretty much disconnected from the world. She could smell, she could taste, she could feel, but that's it. And her family was having such a hard time trying to adjust to her condition and trying to communicate with her. After all, we are so accustomed to speaking and and seeing and talking. We learn by visual understanding. And it's part of the God-given intelligence that we have. And when you think about it, you know, we take language for granted, but the very fact that we can communicate is a miracle. You know, the, the atheists cannot explain that. We can make sounds just by moving our lips and our tongue and our vocal cords over the internet. You hear the sounds I am making and you can understand the information that I am conveying to you. It's a miracle. (laughs) Not to mention the written word. I can make some marks on a paper, just different type of shapes. You look at it and you understand what I'm talking to you, what I'm telling you. Well, how did you learn that? How did we learn how to speak? How did we learn to understand? Nobody really knows. But when you're a baby, you just kind of pick it up. Your parents talk to you, you hear people talk, and you just kind of slowly but surely start to understand. And the movie is very powerful because, as I mentioned, Helen Keller was both blind and deaf. Nobody could talk to her, nobody could write anything to her, and there really was no way for the family to communicate with her. And as much as they loved her, and when you see the movie you realize they do love her, they were simply unable to help her. So her problem wasn't that she wasn't loved, but that those who loved her did not know how to help her. It's as simple as that, and many of you are the same. You have people who love you, and you have people that you love, but those who love you cannot help you, and you cannot help the ones you love. The truth is, there is only one that both loves us 
and can help us, and that is Yeshua, the Mashiach, the Creator, yod hei vav hei, our God. And when you really look at this movie and you compare the role of Anne Sullivan, she was the teacher who was also born almost blind, and she kind of came out of it, and you compare it with Yeshua, who is the teacher in real life, the spiritual teacher that comes to us who are blind, and he helps us see. He helps us to understand and to learn how to communicate with the Father in the Spirit and to have this understanding of really where we come from, who we are, who is our Father. It is very similar, very good correlations between the two. And let's say this, we don't get to choose our parents. We really don't. And in some cases, you don't get to choose your children unless you are adopting them, which makes another conversation for really the tremendous difference between being born and being adopted. Now, who does get to choose is God. You don't. But God has already decided who was going to be born by your loins and who would adopt by your name. But you don't get to choose your parents. You also don't get to choose your Savior. Many times you think you do, but you don't. You don't know who's going to come and be the one. You've spent all you have going to doctor after doctor, all your life, all your money on doctors, trying to choose your savior, choose your healer, even choose your lover. How many of you have chosen your lover who's no longer your lover? The wife, is she the ex, the mistress? How many girlfriends have you had? Are you still with your friends from your childhood? Is that best friend a new friend and a new friend with once your enemy? What's going on? You don't get to choose how father, what mechanism, he instrument he may use to bring you help. You may not like the way it looks. You may not like the way it talks. It may not be your cup of tea. It may not be from amongst your own race or your tribe may not have the attributes and characteristics of your intellect or accomplishment, may not be of your class or your standing, may not be a member of your own family. It may not even be you. And oftentimes we want to be the one. We want to be the savior. We want to be the hero. We want to be the answer. We want to be the one that throws that winning touchdown pass. We want to be the one that made that last-minute three-point shot for victory. We want to be the one that stormed that beach, that fired that gun, dropped that bomb, or made that diplomatic treaty so that it could be said of us, I saved them. It was me that brought them together. I introduced him to his wife. I'm the one that made her husband. No, no. True salvation is not decided by any of us. It's decided by the one who orchestrates all things and sets all things in motion. And the beauty of this film, as Guy said, you can see the battle between those 
who want to be the Savior and to the one that actually is the Savior and the hope for this young girl. And more than often, more often than not, you, who are the mother or the father, the lover or the brother, the sister or the friend, you become the greatest obstacle in way of the one that you're trying to help or save. You just have to learn to get out of the way, which is why people go to psychologists and psychiatrists, counselors and guiders and doctors and gurus and shamans and everybody else in between. Because somehow or another, the ones that are closest to them can't help them. And it's because in many cases, you are ill-equipped to do so. You don't know how to do so, or you're too emotionally involved to do so. You see, you're not actually willing to do the hard work that the teacher is willing to do, like a drill sergeant to your son of the army. You're actually not willing to do the hard work devoted to something higher than your own personal agenda and emotional attachment. Sometimes it needs somebody outside of yourself that truly is trying to help you be better than yourself to save you from yourself. Amen. Amen. And just because you need someone from the outside doesn't mean that you want them or that you accept them. See, many of us resist. You know, you watch the movie and you see just how, you know, Helen Keller, as much as she needed help, <laughs> she didn't necessarily want it. No, she was fine in her own mind, just doing things the way she does it. You know, she was walking around the table, just shoving her hands in everybody else's plate, doing whatever she wants, and nobody would discipline her because they gave up. They said, well, this is the only way we can have adult conversation. Just let her do what she wants. Like an animal. But you see, the teacher said, even a dog you housebreak. So you really treat her worse than an animal. Because the family, they loved her, but from a distance. They wanted what was best for themselves, not for her. Which is no love at all, by the way. They had the emotion of love, but not the devotion of it. Because true love is about the interest of the object of your affection. So the teacher, even though she did not even know the child, it wasn't even her child, she loved that child because she truly wanted the best for that child. She wanted to reach her. She wanted to pull her out of her inner darkness so that she could come out and communicate, open her mouth, open her eyes. And it's much like a baby. You know, you have a baby and that is why you talk to them so much. You look at them, you make funny noises and funny faces and you communicate around them. You involve them in your social life because it is good for them to be exposed so that they see, they hear and they slowly understand. And of course, as soon as the teacher comes in the set and the, the girl, she realizes something's up, <laughs> she locks the teacher in her bedroom and throws the key down the well. <laughs> and, 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 and think about many times how we have rejected the teacher that God has sent, the mentor, the one in your life that father has sent. And it boils down in one instance, I should say boils down, but in, in addition to that point, it really addresses a different factor of objectivity. You know, we, we lose objectivity when we're so close to the target of someone standing far off 
has a better observation, but someone close up does not. You're too close to the target to help. And you need some objectivity, something that really has nothing to gain by it. And it's not looking to please, not looking to make you feel good. It's trying to help you to be good. So a person like that can take the ire of your disgust and distaste and your mockings and accusations. When you literally void yourself of that, interestingly enough to that point, right, we go back to being locked in the room, you have to also have someone that can identify. You know, the scripture says we do not have a high priest who can, a Cohen Goodell that cannot be touched by infirmity, but in every way understands, knows us, not only created us, knows us and experienced us and walked in that mud, knows what it feels like to be in that human flesh. And you have to have someone many times who's been there and done that, who's already come out of that, been there, done that, or read that and think you know that. I've already been down that road, son. Let me tell you about that road. In your pride and in your rebellion, you resist a wise man like that. In fact, you'd rather talk to your friends who are the same age you are, who've never been down that road, who've never had experience. So you will avoid true wisdom, true sage, true age, true age, the wisdom that comes with a wise man of age who's actually learned from the disciplines of the era of his mistakes, as did the teacher. Yep. She grew up in that environment. She grew up in a one of those asylums with her brother who was with crutches. He had some sort of a defect. And because she came out of it, she knew what the girl was going through. Her family had no idea. And she started to communicate with her by making shapes of letters with her hand. She grabbed her hand and she would make a shape spell the word cake, for instance, and then she gave her a piece of cake and she tried to assimilate and associate different movements with different words, different objects. And she had empathy, not sympathy. The family had sympathy, but not empathy. Empathy is the ability to relate. Sympathy is I can't relate, so I feel sorry for you. So you have to have empathy. She had the ability. The scripture says, when you are sharing the word of God, when you are talking to people, trying to maybe help people that are poor, but you were once poor, so you know you've got money. Remember, you weren't always a man of wealth. Remember the foreigner and the slave. Why? Because you were once a foreigner and slave yourself. Remember the unbelievers, uh, the godless ones that we meet, because at some point, weren't you an unbeliever? Weren't you godless, if you're honest about yourself? So the scripture says, remember, for such were some of you before you were converted. It's so easy to get high, lofty, prideful, and arrogant, boastful, and a lack of compassion, because you want to forget where you come from, that you were once, quote unquote, nothing, poor, rejected, dejected, ejected. You forget that. You should not forget where you come from. You should not forget who bought you where you have come from. And you should give glory to God. That way we could be of a greater instrument of help to those who are without. For all things come of God. And that's what makes her so unique, the teacher, because she came from that and came out of it. Hallelujah. 
you know, Matthew chapter seven, judge ye not, lest ye be judged. But with that judgment, you meet shall be judged back to you. If you've got a, if you've got a log in your eye and a brother's got a speck in your eye, take the log first out of your eye. Then you can see how to help the one that has a problem in their eye. It's the eye principle, not the eye, the letter I, the eye, the seeing eye, the E-Y-E. It's to help you see that deal with thyself. Why? Because I want you to deal with other people. I don't want you to avoid them. I want you to help each other. I am my brother's keeper. Therefore, let me take the log out of my eye. So I'm in a position to help you in your eye. Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah, and that's something that many people do not understand. It doesn't tell you not to judge. It teaches you how to judge and how to help. You know, after all, judging is not being judgmental, saying, oh, he's this and he's that. No, judging is rightly dividing the word of God, saying, hey, this is what Adonai says. This is where you fell off the wagon. You need to get back on that. That's what it really means to judge. This is what is right. So this woman, Anne Sullivan, the teacher, she was trying to help Helen. And because she had compassion and she could emphasize because she was there, she had so much patience. And, you know, one of the things she said, well, one thing you don't know about me, I got nothing else to do and nowhere else to go. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, for a job like this, you really have... You, you must have a strong will. You got to be strong-willed and focused and determined because it is war. You know, we are in a war. There is a constant war, the war of the mind, the war in the spirit, the war between ourselves and others and the war between ourselves and ourselves. There are so many wars on so many different levels. And really, at the end of the day, the victory does not go to the fastest or the strongest, but the ones who endures till the end. You know, it's the, it's the story of the rabbit and the turtles, right? It's always the same. All of those stories are really based on scriptural principles because it is true. So this woman, she tries to teach her those words and the mother comes in and she says, you know, she makes those shapes and she says, does that mean that to her? And the teacher goes, and I love her answer. She says, no, no. She won't know how to spell until she knows what a word is. Wow. She's not going to understand what I'm talking about until she even understands what is a word. See, at that point, the girl must have been, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old. So she's not a baby, but she's at the age where you can still reach her. You know, once people are kind of after the teenage years, it's over for them. They don't listen. They think they know everything. But if you can reach them when they're young, that's why the father said, Adonai, teach your children. Raise your children in the Lord. Walk with them. Inscribe those words of mine on their heart so they grow up with it. So she's trying to teach her, but the child, again, she's not a baby, so she already has a strong will and she's just, you know, a child that nobody ever taught anything. She's pretty much a blank slate because she could not hear, could not see. All she knows is what she experienced through her senses of touch, smell, and taste. And whatever goes on inside her mind, nobody knows. See, the family thought there was something wrong with her mind, but the teacher says, no, there's nothing wrong with her mind. I just need to reach her. She'll figure it out. I just need to be patient enough to teach her maybe after a million words, maybe two million words, then she will learn how to connect the dots and understand, ah, 
these shapes that I'm making, the square and the rod and all of that, it means this item. And, and then started the war because, you know, the student did not want to learn anything. <laughs> no. And, and by the way, the, the student doesn't even know what she wants to learn. You have to understand that you don't know what you're missing. We're children. We don't know what we don't know. That's what parents are your first teachers. They're the ones that know. They've been here. They were in Egypt. They saw the miracles in the desert. The children don't know. They weren't there. They didn't see. They didn't hear. You did. And the responsibility, the ignorance of the child is really based on the failure of the parent because you are the one that knows it's a soul. It doesn't know it has a soul. You know it has a soul, but you're judging on the appearance. You're judging on, and what's the appearance? The entrance to the cave. When God sent the prophet to anoint the next king under the sons of Jesse that would succeed Saul, he says, surely man looketh on the outside, but God looketh on the inside. Man looketh on the outside, but God judges the heart. God knoweth the heart. We always look at the appearance. Judge not by appearance. That's Matthew 7. That's John 7. But when you judge, judge right judgment. That's rightly dividing. Don't judge by the appearance. Judge more deeply. You go into a cave to mine for ore or diamond or copper or zinc. You have to get past the appearance. You literally have to blast your way, chisel your way, hammer your way, dig your way through the veneer, the appearance. The first thing to get to the actual thing, that core, that pearl in the middle of that, that clam, that oyster. You have to understand that relationships work the same way. Most are not willing to blast through the entrance, to chisel through, to get to the core. They want to define you only by that outside. And you do that way in relationships as well. In fact, many don't even care about the core or the inside. It's enough to have the makeup on the outside or to judge by the outside. And that's what the teacher does. She digs through where the parents did not, they didn't care. They didn't really want to do the hard work. It's hard work to go deep, by the way. It's really hard work to dig and go underground and go through the rock. That heart, that stubborn heart of stone. Yeah, and that girl really was the tyrant of that household because nobody cared enough to fight with her and teach her manners, how to sit at the table, how to eat from her own plate, how to mind her own business. They didn't care enough. Because it, it is hard work. You got to dig, you got to work, you got to use that sledgehammer, you got to use that scalpel. You see people in the mines in Africa, it is hard work. How much more a human soul? And yet, and that's just the beginning. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning. Because as you see, as you watch the movie, they weren't even willing to do the hard work that wasn't really the goal of the work at all. The hard work was just to get her at the starting line. And when the teacher did get her at the starting line, which they were not even willing to do, fold your napkin, sit down, and now eat. The family was content with that. It's like, oh, well, that's it. No, no, no. That's it. That's not the work. That's just what you wanted to just get her to a place where she can sit still at a table and eat food. And you think that's the extent of her? I've got a far better vision than that, than you have of her. I've, oh, is that all you want for her? Is that all you think you want for a human soul? You think that's all there is? That, because what that did for them, it allowed them to not be disturbed by her, annoyed by her. You ever had that? 
Yeah, and how many parents just want their children to have a good job, just have a good career, have a good pension plan, have a nice house, have a nice wife, have some nice children, but they don't care about your eternal soul, they don't care about your relationship with the father, about your spiritual work, about your character, your morals, your integrity, they could care less. All they care about is that you have some money coming in so they can ease their conscience. We raised him well. He's not going to be dependent. He's going to have enough money. Look at him. He's so successful. He's driving very nice cars. He's making good in this world. A bunch of devils. But you don't know any better. That's all you people care about. I worked in a company for 26 years that did the same thing. They tried to push you aside. Just as long, just give him enough to quiet him down. Get, get him out of here. Why? I don't want him to be here. To, I don't want to do the deeper work. I don't want to have to face the deeper issue he's bringing up. And we do that with babies. Babies are crying in a car. Oh, just turn the television. Uh, uh, distract them. Just get them something. You don't want to get to the core of why that baby's crying, why that baby's miserable, because it's about you. It's not about the baby. It's about the baby disrupting your time, making your life miserable. It's not really about the care of the child, nor it's about the thing that you can really learn. Most of us just go along to get along because we're wrong and we don't care to do better, to do more than what is required. We have no true goal to achieve our best, just enough to get through it. And we say, oh, just say anything, just to quiet them down. You don't want to do the hard work. And yet you go to a doctor when you're suffering with things that you cannot explain, that cannot be resolved or diagnosed properly. And you'll let them pick and pine and prone and pluck and poke and cut because you are desperate. Yeah, and you hate it when they brush you off. They just say, oh, I get it. Okay, so here, I wrote you the prescription. Here, take this and, and go. And you're like, wait, don't you want to take a look? Don't you want to ask me questions? Don't you want to hear how this happened? What happened? What treatments I've already done? No, they just brush you off. Oh, here you go. This is what you got. Okay, here's the prescription. Okay, next. No, y you hate when doctors treat you this way, yet you treat everybody else this way. Think about it. You run into someone. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Good. Liars. What is this? Why do you even ask if you don't care? <laughs> well, because you don't care. See, it appeases your conscience to make you think you, oh, oh, I asked him how he was doing. But notice how you ask. I call many of my family members, they act, they act the same way. Oh, how you doing? Notice how you ask the tone and the frequency. You don't care and you don't really want to know. In fact, many will say that to me and they'll talk for 20 minutes about themselves when they know that you're going through it. No, seriously, how, what, what's going on? You don't ask any probing questions like a lawyer. You're afraid to because it makes you culpable and responsible. And you don't like to carry your brother's cross, yet you're called to carry one another's burdens. You do the same thing, you religious hypocrites, you mockers of God's Torah. You do the same thing. And do not think that you will not face the judgment. See. Miss Sullivan, unlike you, was willing to carry the cross. And she was not distracted, deterred, diminished from that task. But that task originated within her. 
It didn't come from a preacher, a pope, a pastor, a pimp. It came from Adonai, from within. She was forged in a crucible. She was refined in the fire. Ah, but most of you don't want the fire or the crucible. But you sure love diamonds and jewels that went through the fire and crucible. You want everything that goes through the fire and crucible but yourself. And the only fire and crucible that you ever exert is the oppression of your brother, your employees, your friends, your children, your neighbor, the alien, the stranger. You'll put them under that fire. But that's a strange fire, the wrong fire, the kind of fire that comes back to destroy you in the furnace, like it did those that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. See, a fire will do two things. It will incinerate you for the dross and the ash that nothing good in you is, or it will refine and bring out the best part of you for the good that is. Hallelujah. And either way, you got to be willing to take the heat. <laughs> If you can't take the heat, get out of the what? Kitchen. And that's actually connecting to the next scene in the movie where they're in the dining room. And that is World War II. It is... We don't want to give it away because that is, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie. You'll just have to watch it for yourselves. I'm not even going to tell you about it. <laughs> oh, oh. Listen, those of you, those, those of you who love uh, watching that barbaric, brutal sport of cage fighting and boxing, all of that nasty brutality because you're barbarians, well, why don't you watch what a true fight that is holy looks like? with purpose to save someone's life, the true fight. Oh, it's not storming the beaches of Omaha or Normandy on D-Day. You want to see what a fight looks like? Woo! Wow, I can imagine if we could actually film and actually have seen Jacob wrestle with the angel of the Lord. Wow, what would that look like? Not the wrestling match at the Greek Olympic Coliseums and all of the useless sports that you're engaged in, Zuckerberg and Musk wanting to fight each other. Who cares? You want to see a fight? Watch a woman on the altar wrestling with her doubt and unbelief to grab hold of God for a baby. Watch a man in a pit with boils coming out of his body, his wife condemning him and cursing and telling him to curse God, struggling and fighting against the pressure of the loss of his health, his wealth, his life, his children, his prestige. Watch how he holds on to God's unchanging hand. Watch how Jacob holds on to God until he gets a blessing. You hold on to nothing for a blessing but a woman's waist, a dog's leash, or a bank account or stock or a real estate deal. You are godless, and God will deal with you. Amen. And even when you do pray, you don't pray expecting to receive. You don't pray out of faith. And when you don't receive right away, you stop praying. You say, oh, well, God's not listening. I'll do something else. What else is on? <laughs> uh, yes, too many people of you, you don't even take God seriously. You say you do, you're religious, but you don't believe in God. If you believed in God, your life would be completely, utterly different. And see, Mrs. Sullivan, the teacher, she believed in truth. She believed in hope. She believed in healing and deliverance in spite of what the family saw. See, she had to be blind to see. 
and those that think they see need to be blinded in order to see. You have to be blinded to see. And what does blindness do? But eliminate all of the distractions from all of those people in yoga pants all day. The men with purple wigs and pink dresses that want to pretend they're women. Blind you from the billboards flashing the lights and the bells of a Vegas casino or strip. Blind you from the distraction of the noise. Ah, to really see, you have to be blinded to see. Because you're seeing so much you can't see at all. And that is a good point because so many of you are blinded. You have a veil pulled over your eye. That's the matrix. You you don't see anything. You think this is life. You see the entertainment and the politics and the protests and the political activists and, and this war and that war and the finances and the stock market and the healthcare and surfing and all of your hobbies. And you all are blinded to the truth, which is you are going to hell. This is just the beginning of your life. This is where you choose whether you want to be born or be aborted. And you are the one that aborts yourself. And that is the truth that nobody wants to acknowledge, especially in the age we live in. You're so consumed with finances and entertainment. Really, that is the, the God of this modern age. I just want to be entertained. What's on the TV? What sport is on? Which season is it? What's going on? Where can I go and get drunk? Who can I sleep with? It's all about your pleasures and your flesh. The more you have, the more you want. And then you look at the other people in Bolivia and uh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Congo, Armenia. They're struggling for survival. See, they're blinded because they're stuck with the troubles and the struggles of this world. Their troubles of this world are really not troubles at all, rather than their survival of the world. And what was this movie about? Survival. 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 You see, the moment they, those countries like Bangladesh and Mumbai and these countries that are su suffering, with, and, and let's qualify that. I don't know if we really should say they're suffering. Because you don't see your suffering. You're blinded to it because you live in a concrete jungle. And you have been made to believe that those in a concrete jungle aren't the ones that's suffering. No, no, no. By and far. A quick little sidebar. There was a, a uh, African chief uh, in a jungle somewhere. And I don't remember the details, so forgive me for the characterization. But he was talking to his son about these missionaries that came, you know, a type. It's usually a white person from England or America. And they were talking, and there was two different conversations going on. The missionary was talking to their children about these men in the jungle, and the men in the jungle didn't understand what they were saying. And so, how sad for these people in the jungle. And Mama, do you think they'll ever be civilized? like us to wear tight corsicate dresses and tight socks and white wigs on our heads and live in places that are covered with anything but natural organic matter? Will they be civilized like us? Get out of what God has created and live in only what man has created outside of his normal habitat, mother? 
Will they ever see God? And the chief is talking to his son. And his son is saying, wow, Father, is there any hope for those people? Look at them. They're so tightly wound up. They look like they're in prison in the clothes that they wear. Will they ever be free, Father? Will they ever return to nature and see God so clearly without having to construct buildings of glass and steel and stone? Why, Father, do they need so much? Why can't they see, Father, our Heavenly Father, right here in nature, in the tree, and the sun, and the earth, and the animals, and the birds? Oh, Father. And his son will pray for them. And the missionary tells her children, oh, well, we just have to pray for them. And if you're looking and observing the two, it's obvious which one needs the prayer. It's not the chieftain and the jungle. The jungle, not the concrete jungle, not that homogenized, algamation, aberration, not that demonic obstruction and monstrosity that depends on nothing but the ruthlessness, the greed, and the inorganic, unnatural life with tons of distractions, but not one attraction. And everything that Father has made, you can count on, you can depend on. And what has man made that you can depend on and count on that does not bring you death? Yeah, we did another podcast about God's technology versus man technology, so we're not going to get into this here. But coming back to the message, the woman, see, they, they mocked the teacher because they said, well, you bring one blind person to lead another, now we're going to have two of them to take care of. Because they were the blind themselves. And what did Yeshua tell the Pharisees? <laughs> if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But since you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See, the family, the family testified about themselves that they could see, and yet they were unable to save her, to help her, to deliver her. They did not know how to reach her. It took the blind person to see the way. And she was what? I once was blind, but now I see. You see and never once was blind. Therefore, you cannot see. <laughs> Amen. Amen. You got to come from it. And, you know, obviously the girl wanted to escape from her because she doesn't understand what's going on. She just knows that there's somebody here that keeps trying to tell her what to do, forces her to sit down, makes this weird shape with her hand. She doesn't understand anything. She want to be left alone. So she runs from her. And the teacher says, it's useless. It's useless. It's never going to happen here. I need to take her away. And what did Adonai said? Adonai said, Abraham, leave your father's house. It's useless here. It's not going to happen. There's too many distractions, too many people, it's too much. It's just, I'm going to take you somewhere else where you're going to learn to depend completely and entirely on me. And the teacher says she needs to learn to depend on me for the clothes she wears, the food she eats, the even air she breathes. Because that was the only way that she can communicate with her. Israel, listen to what you just said. What did God do with Moshe? He was depending on the riches of Egypt in that empire. He called him out to the desert. Walk me through the desert. He took him out to the desert. I'm going to remove you from the abundance 
of this man-made enterprise, empire. I'm going to get you to a place where you're going to have to trust me for the water. You're going to have to trust me for the bread. You're going to live off of the land. You're going to work that land. You're going to call on my name and you're going to have to depend on me to protect you. There'll be no Kushite Nubian army, Egypt, around you to protect your empire, which was comprised of the Egyptian protection zone, those tribes. No, you're going to have to depend on me, the staff in your hand and the rod in your side. You're going to have to depend on who? Adonai? Zavaot, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of protection. I'm going to show you what I can do. I need to get you out of your father's house, move you from your people, your kinsmen. Yeshua said, he that coming up to me must leave mother and father, especially mother. She's, you don't know how that goes. Leave mother and father. Come out from amongst them. Smash the idols of your father's house. None of you. You're not going to do that. American theology is family first. And then second, it's the flag in the Constitution, not God, not the Torah. The, God and the Torah does not be in that list. You know, family first, the flag, the wife, the girlfriend, the, the bank account, the dog, the politician, the political party. Oh, does God, the church, the pastor, the priest, the rabbi. The tradition, you put everything and anything before God, who is everything and above all things. Therefore, you miss the entire thing. So you are nothing, nothing. Your house is built on sand and not the rock. Not the rock. You're building it on sand, not the rock. True wealth, true treasure, not the stuff that can lose its value on the international exchange rate market, the stocks that fall and rise at a whim, not your real estate holdings that can be taken, confiscated by the bank, foreclosed upon, seized upon, burnt down, destroyed by an act of God, earthquake, fire, flood, and wind, not something that can be stolen at the end of a gun or a knife or bomb or missile or government domain. No, can't be confiscated, can't be eradicated, can't be relegated, can't be decimated, can't be denigrated. One thing, the Torah, the word of God, the true wealth, the true riches, that moth and rust cannot decay, these can't break in and steal. But you've chosen to trust in that which has nothing to it. See, nobody wants to invest in something good. <laughs> something bad? I'll do this. It's a scam? Ooh, I love scams. I'll do it. Now, tell you to invest in your eternal soul? Uh, I don't know about that. I'm skeptical. Let me see your pen flip again. What's in the brochure? I'm going to tell you how to get rich. Hey, come on. Call this, dial this number. Are you tired of working? Are you tired of working the chicken farm? Are you tired of typing? Are you tired? Come this. with this one easy step. Just get my program. Oh. Come for my seminar. We're going to give you financial independence. This is going to set you free. And you all jump for it. Rather, it's a guru on some sort of infomercial, commercial, 
or rather it's somebody in a white suit on a stage with a cross around their neck, commoditizing, monetizing, using, utilizing God for your death, cannibalizing the sheep. Everybody's a salesman, but nobody's a servant. But she was a servant. I need to take her away from you. Because what you want for her is never going to happen as long as it's under this house. I know you love her. If you love her, let her go. If you love her, release her. And she'll come back to you. But you got to take that risk and let it go. And after she did take her, she still wouldn't want anything to do with her. So what the teacher did is pretty much ingenious. It's what God did with Israel. She made her jealous. <laughs> she brought in <laughs> she brought in another guy and she started teaching him how to, you know, spell with his hand to make those shapes. And when Helen Keller, she was kind of touching and feeling and she felt that she was teaching the other kid those shapes. And she was like, no, no. Get away, you. Get away, you. Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> and the teacher says, ah, I got you jealous. Now you want what I have to offer. See, that's what God did with Israel. See, Israel was there for a season until God was like, enough. And then Yeshua said, now go preach to the Gentiles. And the Jews, I'm done with you. Go home. 2,000 years of exile. You'll be back when I'm done with those Gentiles. When you get jealous again. When you actually want me. <laughs> and you see that throughout history. <laughs> you see it even in your high school. The girl that you weren't treating right, all of a sudden somebody else puts more value on her, you want her back. I've discipled a lot of guys over the years, and I have to tell you, I can't tell you how many of the guys, uh, they went astray, but their younger brothers came up and decided they wanted God. Or somebody else that you started off mentoring, and their friend became more a follower than the one that you initially met. I have several people I've met. And many of the times, I ended up meeting their friends. Their friends didn't know anything about me and became more of a follower than the one that I was mentoring. Decided, wow, you know, you're not, wow. Oh, how often do you talk to that guy? Oh, well, once in a while. Talk to him once in a while. Man, I, that guy has a lot of information. That guy has a lot of knowledge, man. I, man, I talk to him every day. I, I tried to reach out to them. Oh, really? And then they start getting jealous for the wrong reasons, by the way. It doesn't make them want to know God, actually. And now it makes them angry. Now they are resentful because their heart is not after God. Basically, they have the attitude, well, if I can't, no one can. And then they get jealous that somebody actually wants God more than they do. That happens a lot in Judaism as well. When they do find the real followers, I'm not talking about Christians, the real followers, and it makes them jealous. Someone that actually loves the Torah, that actually speaks about the Torah without thinking just because I love the Torah, oh, I must be a follower of Yeshua. Well, why is that the case? You mean you don't love the Torah for the Torah's sake? Is, is God not in the Torah? It's the same God. Yeshua said, when you've seen me, you've seen Abba, Adonai. We and the Father are one. We're not compartmentalized. We're, we're not separate. We, we, I, I, in fact, I do nothing except that which I've seen the Father do. In fact, I'm the, I am the completion. I am the fullness. I am, I am the totality of the Torah. What? God's word is good. 
and I am the word. I represent that. In me hang all of the mitzvahs, the codes, the regulations. In me. Are you kidding? I love thy word, David said. My heart delights on it day and night. I love thy Torah, O Lord. They say law because they love to consider it translated that way. It sounds so negative. Since when is law negative? Oh, that was the old law. Really? Would you like gravity to be the old law? You'd be dead. Do you know the principles of gravity? That's the reason why you live and breathe? The old law. The laws that Father has set in place are eternal, irrefutable, immutable. No, dear ones. No. No, Lord, your law I love. I see it as a burden, do you? You walk down the street and see the signs as a burden, letting you know where you'd stop, where you should turn. This is a one way. The bridge is out. You got to put the gear up to the second to get down this mountain. You got to do this here. There's a slippery road ahead. All of these signs, all of these laws, all of these reminders, all of these codes, all of these regulations. Get in this lane, turn here. Don't go down here. Steep road, steep climb. Are you kidding me? You live by these principles. They are to protect you. They are to make sure that collectively, as a people in a large herd, you don't run over each other. See, the animals have no problem. The flocks and birds and geese that migrate, the butterflies, they're not collapsing into each other. You do that as a human. You instinctively don't have that order in you. So God requires code and regulations and mitzvahs and teachers and shepherds and sheepdogs to herd you. And every once in a while, to grab that staff and hook you. Because by your nature, unlike the bison, unlike the wild animals on the Serengeti, you stampede each other. You run over each other. You destroy each other. So back to the movie. After she got jealous, they finally made contact. And the teacher said, now all I have to teach you is one word, everything. <laughs> and she just gets to work and she starts making all these shapes and she takes her out. She makes her touch the tree and she goes tree. She makes the shape for T-R-E-E, -E, water, W-A-T-E-R, those shapes, that what they represent. And, you know, some words she has to check in the dictionary to make sure she teaches her the right spelling. Because <laughs> think about it. We know we understand something based on spelling, based on, on vocal sounds. If I don't write something proper, you're not going to understand what I mean. If I don't say it proper, you're not going to understand. So the only way she can understand is by feeling those shapes with the hand. So everything has to be precise so that she will recognize and know, okay, so this plus this plus this plus that equals that. And this, so that way she will even understand what letters are. Because she doesn't even have that understanding. And you have to get it in your mind to realize just how deep this teaching is. Before you can understand meaning, you have to understand what is a word. Before you understand what is a word, you have to understand what is a letter. It is a building block of a word, which is a block, which words together make the building. And there's so many tears to it. We talked about you don't know what the word of God is because you don't even know what a word is. As I said, let there be light. Well, what does that even mean? What does the sound, the frequency behind it? See, God created everything. He created language. He created sound. He created frequencies. He created light. All of those things, he used his word 
to do so. He spoke wisdom into existence. It is beyond us to even think of comprehending. And yet this woman came to this child and by making shapes with her hand, tried to get her to break out of her shell. And, and she, almost, she almost got there, but you know, then the family said, okay, that's enough, bring her back to the house. <laughs> and as soon as she came back to that environment, she started acting up again, sitting at the table, dropping her napkin, not willing to cooperate. Why? Because she's like, I'm done with you. I'm back in my own element. I don't need you. I, I played along with you for now, but now I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> and they fight again. And the family, of course, tells the teacher, Oh, leave her alone. It's her welcome back party. We make her favorite meals, her favorite dishes. Oh, just let her be. But the teacher is like, if you're going to allow her this one time, you're going to ruin everything I worked for. Because you're going to teach her that nothing that I did matters. And you're going to destroy all the effort I put in. So she says, no. And she takes her outside because the girl spilled the water jug in her face. She takes her to fill the water. And she puts her hand in the water. And she starts pulling the pump. And the girl fills the water. And the teacher, while she's filling the water, the teacher makes that shape again for water. And then it happens. And you can see the girl, she's like, wait. And she goes, what? What? Because when she was very young, they say it in the early in the movie, she could almost say water when she was six months old. She said, wawa. And now all of a sudden, she's filling this water. The teacher is doing the shape for water. And the girl says, wawa. And she starts realizing, connecting the dots that what those shapes are, she's explaining to her what things are. And then she runs to the tree. And she goes, tree and then she runs to the step and she goes step and she starts ringing the bell and everybody's like it's it just that moment when she finally connected her mind to understand what all of this was about what this life is about what all of her experience was were about she finally had her eyes opened and it's just it was just the most emotional amazing moment in the movie <laughs> after everything they went through all of those wars, all of the fighting, all of the struggle. And then she runs to the teacher. She kisses her. She hugs her. And it's just the most amazing ending to the movie because she finally realized, I've been fighting you. I've been resisting you. I've been annoying you. I thought you were my enemy. I thought you were there to torment me. I thought you were just bugging me. But now I see. Now I understand. You were there for me all this time. You put up with me. You were patient with me. You loved me. You helped me. And now she was eternally grateful. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is right. Wow. It's, and Papa, for all of the things that trouble us, it's something about that final moment when you're walking out of 400 years of captivity and you're being led free. It doesn't matter where. You, they weren't being led to Club Med or a resort or a carnival cruise. They were being led out of bondage. And it didn't matter which direction we were headed. We were coming out, coming out of that concentration camp, coming off of that slave plantation. Doesn't matter. You're not looking at where you're going. You are looking and grateful for what you are leaving. 
when you've been under slavery. It could be a company you've worked for. It could be a family that you're in. It could be an abusive relationship. When women in the 70s and 80s were going through a lot of spousal abuse, all of these women's centers, they don't have them so much anymore. All of these women's centers, they would rescue these women. It didn't matter. They had to get a safe house. They'd get out. They would, they, did, they would leave their children. They would leave their clothes, everything. The abuse became, and women can take a lot. They can endure a lot more pain and abuse than men can. And so to bring a woman to that place, that says a lot. A woman can take a lot compared to men. And she took a lot, and she would call that helpline, and they would rescue her at a bus stop. Uh, at, on her lunch break at work. And all she would have was the clothes on her back, not the clothes in her closet, not her shoes, and not her children, just to get away from that abuse. And it was so relieving, so relieving to have to get into a safe house and not have to have a man come home and hit you, beat you, abuse you, misuse you. So sometimes freedom. It's not so much where you're going, but what you're leaving behind. I'll do anything just to get out from what I've been under. And everything, anything, even the desert, looks like an oasis. Yeah. And you think about it, we go through this life with all of our struggles, all of the pain, all of the suffering. We don't know what the purpose is. We have no idea. Now, those of us who have a relationship with the Father, we, we know a little bit. He reveals his plan to us. But it's not for us to share with you anyway. That's for him to reveal to you if you give your life to him. But there is a purpose, and that's all you need to know. There was a purpose for all of those weird hand shapes that the student could not understand. There was a reason for it. There was a purpose. And... It wasn't until later that all of that became clear and she understood. Why is there so much suffering? Why is there hunger? Why did this go to this? Why did that go to that? Don't worry about it. All you have to do is stay the path. Just follow the Lord. Give your life to Him. Submit unto Him. Trust Him. See, that's why trust is so crucial. You can say, but I don't get it. Why are we go? Don't worry about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're walking in this life Looking for the right One to love us To help us To teach us how to love Teach us how to love 
Teach us how to love. Be a helping hand. Teach us how to love. 